The Backpage podcast was launched in January 2020 and is all about hearing from inspirational figures within the world of sport and business. Today's guest is no ordinary inspirational figure. In 1998, at the age of 22, Mark Pollock lost his sight. Mark dealt with this life-changing moment by becoming an adventure athlete, competing in ultra-endurance races across deserts, mountains and the polar ice caps, including becoming the first blind person to race to the South Pole. He also won medals for rowing at the Commonwealth Games in Manchester 2002 and became a now world-famous motivational speaker. In 2010, however, Mark was dealt another devastating blow when he fell from a second-story window and was nearly killed. Mark broke his back and the damage to his spinal cord left him paralysed. Since then, Mark has been on a new expedition to find a cure for paralysis in our lifetime. To help achieve this goal and deal with the ongoing impact of his catastrophic spinal cord injury, Mark set up the incredible global running series called Run in the Dark 10 years ago. Run in the Dark is a mass running event that takes place simultaneously in cities all around the world, from Dublin to London to Belfast to Sydney. This year, because of COVID-19, Run in the Dark will be going virtual. As darkness sweeps around the globe on the 18th of November, 25,000 people worldwide will get up from their living rooms, slip on their red flashing armbands, put on their running shoes and compete in a 5 or a 10k. Running separately whilst connecting socially across seven continents, this global movement will light up the night as people hit the road to run in the dark for the Mark Pollock Trust and all to enable Mark to pursue his personal mission to find a cure for paralysis. My colleague Johnny Medill, who joins me on this podcast, had the good fortune of hearing Mark tell his story many years ago, and it's an honour to have had the chance to welcome him onto the Backpage podcast. We ask Mark about the incredible run in the dark journey and how it's become a truly global brand and the challenges this year of trying to run an international event virtually. Mark also talks about his inspirational journey and experiences in overcoming the sort of adversity that most of us can only begin to imagine. Mark talks about his mind-boggling achievements as an adventurist and an explorer, most notably becoming the first blind person to race to the South Pole, which became the subject of a famous book by Ben Fogel and James Cracknell, who competed in the race that same year. The other eight competing teams, of course, had sight. Mark did it, however, without that essential sense, in unimaginable conditions for 43 days and 43 nights across the world's most brutal terrain. It's difficult to comprehend the immense willpower involved in competing in that race. Mark also talks about the subject of Stoicism and the teachings of Stoic philosophy, a mindset that has served him well and one he is well qualified to talk about. As a speaker, Mark is best known for his 2018 TED Talk. It's called A Love Letter to Realism and In a Time of Grief and is delivered jointly with his fiancée, Simon George. It's got over 1.7 million views and counting and has inspired millions of people in hundreds of organisations around the world. You can check out the link to the TED Talk in the episode notes and we'd very much encourage you to have a listen. Mark is also the subject of the acclaimed documentaries Blind Man Walking and Unbreakable, both of which are incredibly inspirational. It's been an honour to have had Mark share his story and I've no doubt you'll find it not just inspiring but it'll also make you reflect upon what is truly possible in sport and indeed in business when we put our minds to it. Finally, you can find out more about this year's Run in the Dark by checking out the Run in the Dark social channels or runinthedark.org. Here's our chat with Mark Pollock. I hope you enjoy it. 
first of all, Mark, uh, welcome to the Backpage podcast and um, massive thanks for taking the time to join us. It's, it's quite special really for Andrew and myself to have you on as a guest. In fact, it's, it's, it's a real honour. Um, oh, as we sit here in, in London and, and you sit across the pond in, in Dublin, um, in the middle of this sort of never-ending uncertainty in the middle of, uh, of a global pandemic, I suppose it's, it's, it's um, striking that we're, I think, under a month away from the 2020 Run in the Dark, which I believe is the, the 10th year, believe it or not. Um, it is. It is, yeah. And uh, speaking from personal experience, and I know we were, we were chatting the other day on this, I have very fond memories. I've, I think I may have done five or six. I've lost count. Starting off in, in Belfast, and then I did one in Dublin, and then a couple over in London as well. And, and it's, uh, yeah, I've got very fond memories. Best, best time, Johnny, so far? I, I couldn't possibly disclose, disclose on the phone. I think, I think my, uh, my run in the dark PB isn't as quick as my normal PB, because we were talking about this, Mark, in that yeah. the Belfast race obviously starts at the bottom of Stormont Hill. Oh, so yes. you forget that you've got, you've got... That's brutal. Um, <laughs> well, of course, there's the, the, storm, the Stormont... Uh, Photos are the best because there's a for anyone who, who who doesn't know Stormont buildings in Belfast. There's a big hill, a big avenue that goes right up to the doors of of this grand kind of Parliament building, uh, and everyone who's doing the five or ten k, the five k does it once, the ten k people do it twice, and the photos are brilliant, but the runners hate it. Yeah, yeah, I, I certainly agree with that. Um, but I suppose. Thinking back to um, the start of the run, run in the dark journey um, back ten years ago, mm. um, I'm sure for you, Mark, looking back, you must be incredibly proud of how you know an idea and a vision. I'm sure in your head has has grown to become this sort of global um, phenomenon, really, and this this global running brand. Um, mm. I, you know, I'm sure you must look back on on the run of the dark journey with a, a huge amount of of pride. I do, uh, I do, and I look, I look back at it and think of all the people who who started in the beginning, who've been with us right through, and who are entering entering this year. Because in the in the beginning, the person that I was prior to twenty ten, or I suppose now, is quite different from the person who was still in the hospital after a paralysing fall. And sitting at the gates of Trinity College Dublin when the first run in the dark was happening in Dublin, it was also going on simultaneously in Belfast, Galway, Cork, a few other places around the world. But uh, you know, the sense of um, the sense of support that I got that I wasn't on my own uh, yeah. was huge. And those people, those people were out running in the pouring rain. It was freezing. It was a, a dark night in the middle of middle of November, and it felt it felt like I had this huge uh, community of support, uh, which was simply to raise money for me to deal with the consequences of a catastrophic spinal cord injury, to buy an adapted van, to put a lift in my in my house, and at that stage it was a very uncertain time. Would I be able to do any kind of work? Uh, what kind of a life would I have? Would I have care assistance or not? What would it be like? So, so the beginning of a, of of the run was 
quite different from how it's professionalized over the mm. over the few years and and the scale that it's that it's got to. But the the global nature was of course not by design. It was by accident. It was people who couldn't get back that night who were in Sydney, who were in San Francisco and everywhere in between. And they said, look, we just want to we we run as well and and they did and and we built on that over the years. Yeah. I suppose that the the sort of international global element to it where you have effectively you know thousands tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of people um running in different cities around the world at the same time or roughly the same time it, it's a it's a pretty novel concept within the sort of running event space and, and that was always something even you know from a personal point of view whenever whenever you um whenever you ran the event you were always kind of it, it felt kind of special <laughs> whether you were in Belfast or, as you say, Sydney, San Francisco, the fact that you were part mm. of this kind of cool community and this yeah. special community was, was quite powerful in a way. Yeah. Yeah, and I, th- I think the, you know, when, it, when we look when we look at the emergence and how we, how we created the event, part accident, part, part design, but we were told very, very early on, uh, I was in hospital for six, 16 months and, I was pretty sick for mo- for most of it, but from time to time we would meet someone in the community of people with spinal injuries or their families. One of the family members who had set up a, a, a fundraising trust for for his brother a, few, a number of years before said to us that you get about eighteen months of emotional support and giving, and then. If you have a long-term aim, if you don't raise the money you need in that, at that stage, then other people have injuries, other people's lives move on, yeah. pandemics may hit, and and so we thought, well, you know, the short-term aim of buying a van, buying a van, and, and putting a lift in my house that that was one. But very quickly we moved on to the 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 goal of curing paralysis in our lifetime, which is not a short-term goal. So we had to create a business model out of that goodwill that would last for the long term that wouldn't rely on emotional giving wouldn't rely on fundraising beyond the entry fee or indeed um sponsorship now we've sought sponsorship and we've sought fundraising and we've sought that 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 giving all the time but but our business model uh developed so that we could that we had to create an event that had thousands and thousands of people each year because we would make a tiny margin on on, uh, uh, on the entry fee and any sponsorship we got would be excellent. Any fundraising that we brought in uh, would be a bonus, but the, the business model had to, had to stand up on its own two feet. Yeah. Any of the extras. Yeah. That's really interesting. You talking about what was initially a, a you know, a, a, a passion project really and how yeah. that, that became a, a business with a standalone business model. Uh, and I suppose, you know, thinking to, to the next few weeks and, and the event on 18th of November, which is always going to be a, a very different type of run on the dark to the previous nine, um, yeah. given the circumstances, circumstances that we're in. And obviously, you know, it's interesting you framing run on the dark as an events business, I suppose, mm-hmm. you know, obviously every events business whether in sport or or you know physical participation or otherwise is is obviously having to try and 
having to try and adapt to effectively becoming digital and online and virtual. Um, and I'm guessing the last number of weeks and months have been challenging to say the least for you in trying to effectively recreate or, or rethink run in the dark in, in a sort of virtual digital sense. Uh, yeah, well, it, it, it has been, it has been both awful and fantastic because mass participation events as uh, as your audience and and you know mass participation events are well have just not been happening for a long time in, in many parts of the world and we we very quickly realized perhaps not quickly enough I say very quickly we were dealing with my speaking business first and yeah all my bookings were cancelled. And we had to reimagine that into an online business in the immediate term uh, because of the, the bookings for late March, early April, May, all cancelled. So we focused on that first. And then we thought that run in the dark. Somehow we maybe we were just blocking it out, but we thought, oh, well, in November, this will have all passed, surely. Uh, and we were wrong. And then we started, our, our, our thinking evolved to think, well, even... Even if we could, from a government uh, rules point of view, even if we could uh, create this event, perhaps morally we shouldn't, because if we created a cluster, consequences for society would be would be too would be too great, uh, reputational damage for the event as well as a very real consideration. So we yeah. start to think, well, what if we're offering this to people and we're we know that we've got some goodwill. But even if you've got goodwill, you still need to offer people a, a viable product that has has value. So we we thought well, we can't just say, okay, come and enter the tenth edition of Run Run in the Dark. It's the same price, but we're not going to lay anything on for you. Just put your put your put your time up on a on a website, and we'll leave it at that. that we just couldn't do. We couldn't envisage the event being being a, a success in the within inside that framework. So. We started initially to to think, well, how do we get, how do we create an offer that is where we can continue to generate revenue, not slashing prices, but rather offering value. And we first of all had to work out, well, what's the offer? If you can't run together, how do you still create a global community of people, connect them? And we started with the timing chip. Uh, usually, it's on people's race number. They run across physical mats, and that does the timing. We switched and worked with the timing chip company to create an app that people download onto their phone. They record their time, and they go onto a global leaderboard, which is the first time we've been able to do this and internationally. They they'll go onto a global leaderboard, or if they enter as a as a corporate team, they go onto the global leaderboard, and they can sort by by their own uh, team name. So so that was important. We we also then used to give people a flashing armband as our sort of signature piece. <laughs> and uh, that, that in the beginning was the driver for that was because it looked good at night, the flashing armbands, the pictures <laughs> looked great going up Stormont or crossing bridges all over the world. But it was really cheap. It was an interesting product because it was really good, really impactful. People loved it. People's children loved it. They used to wear yeah. it as belts. But it was really cost effective. And remember, we were trying to make a margin. So this year we had to say, well, we need people to use the, download the app to time themselves. It needs to be on their phone. So the flashing armband has now turned into a flashing 
phone holder that people can run with. It, they still get the medal, they get a digital certificate. And then the other, the other piece of, of value that we've been able to provide is we partnered with a company called Spectrum Life, who are a, a corporate wellness business, and they opened up their B2B offering uh, and allowed us to use it and embed it on our website, which is a wellness and fitness platform with 200 hours of fitness content from weight sessions and uh, hit sessions through to the running training programs, nutrition, and then you build up points and you can get money off products. So so we had to reimagine, really relaunch the business. I mean, it's, it's, it's different. And in the context of how, how we sell it, we usually get lots of corporate teams. Um, the corporate teams are down. Uh, the companies aren't paying for the for those for their employees to enter as much. But we're finding a, a huge uptick in individual entries, and we're able to track lots of the data to see well where are they coming from. So lots of people are still entering, but the companies aren't paying, but they're paying themselves. If you're tracking my numbers, in that case, I might ride a bike <laughs> for my five. <laughs> well, do you know? Do you know? You know the fascinating thing about the world of timing chips and the, the challenge that timers uh, fa- face. We only re- realize this. In fact, t- the timing company and the app that we have got have had to build in uh, in intelli- uh, anti cheat. <laughs> anti cheat, exactly. <laughs> but so it comes up if because people do, even though it's a five or ten k, it's yeah. you know it's not the Olympics, but people still cheat. People are still. Yeah. They ride bikes. They they drive. You know. They of course, if they if they're timing and they're in a in a wheelchair, wheelchairs are, are quicker than uh, people running. But the timing chip companies have had to have had to factor that consideration into these products because when people pay money to enter an event, yeah. their time becomes very important to them. Of course, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's if they have, so, yeah. you know, if they think if they if if they know someone in their company, and it can often be in companies, they know so. There's no way that. Uh, uh, a guy or that woman is uh, is going to be running that quickly, and there's all sorts of consternation goes on apparently. So uh, it it is an issue. So no, you can't you can't go on your bike, Andrew. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's funny you talking about the competitive element. I mean, thinking back to whenever I first did the run in the dark, maybe six seven years ago, um, and we did we a big group of us did it at my previous law firm back in Ireland, and. Um, you know, I can remember sort of on the Thursday morning, you know, some of the uh, the sort of banter in the office around who had who had produced the goods and who hadn't. And likewise, um, in my hockey club in Stonians that you obviously know well, Mark, yeah, and, yeah. and the sort of competitive element was was massive. And that, that's all part of it as well. And, and yeah. you know, even though it's going to be slightly different this year, you're still going to have that sort of global community aspect to it and that competitive element. And I suppose the the usually we just had the timing in uh, Belfast, Dublin, Cork, London uh, yeah. were our official events, and then everywhere else around the world were volunteer-led pop-up events. There was no timing; it was more of a community feel. But the great, you know, there's there, the COVID is awful in many 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 respects. But from a business perspective, it's it's forced us to rethink run in the dark and do things. That perhaps we should have been doing from the start or five years ago. You know, we should, we constantly we constantly were reinventing, but if it's going well, you don't you don't reimagine things quite as much as you do in in the midst of a crisis because you're forced to out of necessity. Yes, and the way you've pivoted the business digitally is something you'll be able to 
um, utilize and rely upon in years to come, you know, as and when we get back to yeah, a more normal world. Um, Absolutely. And there's going to be huge benefits from that, albeit, you know, we're still in the midst of, of many uh, challenges. Um, Mark, it just, just occurred to me, actually, that Johnny mentioned um, Instonians there. And, of course, you're, you're actually the second famous Instonian we've had on the podcast. I don't know <laughs> if you heard the podcast we did with Steve Martin a few weeks ago. I did. I was listening. I was listening into it. Absolutely. <laughs> It just occurred to me as we talk about you building your brand, he'd be a good man for you to, to connect into in due course. So we'll make sure we we facilitate that. <laughs> well, look, I was writing I was writing notes on my computer the whole way through. I was uh, listening into him, and, and I I uh, I think he said on the on the podcast never he he's a man for never to never to waste a good a good crisis. And in That's fact, right. yeah, that was that was um, yeah, that was definitely one it's, of the. It's, the... it's funny you say that because I I reckon at least four people. Who have listened to that podcast have made that exact comment that the one yeah. sort of um sound bite that they took from mm. all the great stuff that obviously Steve said from his many years of experience at MNC was actually that that comment about never wasting a crisis. Well, to be fair, I've passed it off as my own a few times. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry, Steve, if you're if you're listening. Um uh, Mark, we we had um a few pints with a couple of others uh, back in Belfast in in February, just before the world turned upside down. I and I remember as I was heading back to London the next day, it dawned upon me quite how extraordinary your achievements have been since we left that that famous school. And and I'm keen to unpack that a little bit on the podcast, if that's okay by you. And perhaps um, we could start with the most famous adventure of them all, the, the race to the South Pole, which you undertook in 2009, which was, of course, 43 nights or 43 days and 43 nights in, in probably the roughest terrain uh, on this planet. Um, I'm really interested to ask you, what, what drove you to, to undertake that particular challenge? If I, I'll try to, I, the reason I'm pausing is I'm trying not to uh, go into the minutiae of the detail, uh, but if I, I think it is worth stepping back at the to the point 10 years before the south pole uh, yeah. when i was in i was in trinity college in dublin i was about to graduate i was rowing for the university and also for ireland i was going to come across to london after that and start a job in investment banking you know i was on my i was on my way age 22 and i went i went blind and apart from losing my sight i i lost my identity you know, I was no longer a sportsman involved with my crew, no longer involved in university life. I didn't think, I didn't know any blind people. I didn't think they did the kind of jobs that I wanted to do. And I set about rebuilding that identity as a sportsman going back rowing. Uh, first of all, rowing and winning medals at the Commonwealth Games. Now, the reason that the Commonwealth Games didn't, satisfy my uh, desire to move from being a reluctant spectator to being a competitor was it was brilliant for me at the time but the commonwealth games in rowing is not the world championships or or the olympics you know i felt like i hadn't got there uh yeah that was, that was manchester 2002 wasn't it yeah and, and the rowing was on in, in nottingham so it, it's a it was it was a fantastic part of my rehabilitation uh, yeah. some of the best memories and rowing with my friend Brenton Smith uh, from, from Northern Ireland, who I also rode with in Trinity. And I then, to quench my thirst, 
to to reestablish my identity as a competitor. I went into adventure racing and did all these races and deserts, mountains, and oceans, and the the South Pole came as a culmination of this. I had I had gone to do the Mount Everest marathon, and I really dialed it in. I knew I could do marathons. I, I stumbled my way up to the Everest base camp, did a marathon, got back. Hated the whole experience. It was awful. I knew I hadn't put my all in. The terrain was terrible. I felt flat after it. And other races like the Gobi Desert, six marathons in a week in the Gobi Desert, I was really fit for that. Yeah. Did pretty well. And I knew that I was on the brink of failure during that race the whole time. So the South Pole married a and lots of other experiences along the way. But the, the South Pole married all of the elements that I'd learned along the way. Financially, I had to raise lots of money. So we were on the brink of failure there. Yeah. If I'd be able to finish the event, do the event psychologically or physically. So the potential for failure was there the whole way through. But I knew by that time that I needed to be doing something that had the risk of failure in order to... Uh, be satisfied when we got to the end of the race. So by defining myself by my willingness to try, it meant that I could comfortably pursue success, risking failure at the same time. And that's, for me, what a competitor is all about. You know, it is about the medals. It is about the winning. But it's not all about that. If you're your best, if you're defining yourself by your, your willingness to try, the success and failure will look after itself at the end. And that's what the South Pole was was all about and it, yeah. and it turned out to be true a desire to be in the fight in the race so exactly yeah yeah it's uh, and and you talk about that that principle of rebuilding your identity i guess that that the journey towards that must have started in that period then between 1998 and 2002 because you know, to go from what you experienced in 1998, I know you, you downplay it to a degree, but to go from that to competing um, on, on an elite stage in an elite sport, I mean, that, that, is, that is quite a quite a journey to go on. I mean, but I think what you're saying is that even competing at that level, you didn't feel that your identity was truly rebuilt, rebuilt and needed something more than that. Yeah, I think, I, I think, it, did. I think it did. And, and don't, get, don't get me wrong, it was... It, it was because it's always easy whenever you, uh, whenever you've done something, you can look back and say it wasn't, it wasn't that big a deal. If I hadn't have got selected for the team, or if we didn't make it, or we didn't get the medals, or whatever, it would have been a you know a hell of a lot harder. Clearly, we only got silver and bro- silver and bronze, so clearly the standard is good enough because we didn't get the gold. But uh, you know, it was it was part of that rebuild, part of the rebuilding of my identity, rebuilding my confidence working out who I was in the world, what mattered to me, what motivated me, what dragged me down. It was, it was all, it was all part of that, that experience. And, and I suppose it, it, it really took 10 years and that race to the South Pole to, to put the demons of blindness behind me. Yeah. I mean, you know, just, just, just that, the experience of that, that, 43 day race i mean you know obviously your book um was a fantastic read about that that particular um experience and event but obviously james cracknell and ben fogel famously also competed competed 
um, in that event and also co-authored a book. And mm. I remember um, I've read both your book and theirs and, you know, some of the, the narrative around the, 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 the extremity of the experience. So when you, you take your glove off, if you touch the wrong thing, you can almost you know, risk instantaneous frostbite and the risk of losing limbs. And you, you hear you know, an athlete say like Ben, uh, uh, James Cracknell talking about that experience and how, how um, mentally and physically challenging it was. But of course, James Cracknell had, had the benefit of, of, of that essential uh, or important sense of sight. Whereas of course you were doing it without that. And I mean, I wonder if it's possible to describe you know how you went about that 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 mentally as well as physically. Yeah, well, I, I think the you start when you lose you lose your sight. You, you can't sort of trapped in your bedroom. You don't know if it's night on night, uh, night or day when you wake up. If you've been asleep for five minutes or you've been asleep all night until you get a talking watch or a or a, a braille watch, and then you start to extend your world to the. Uh, to the door of your bedroom and the door of your house and then out into the big bad world and you learn those sort of mobility skills. So over the years, I became more and more mobile. My world opened up. I got a guide dog. And the reason I mentioned my guide dog is the guide, the guide dog harness became the basis for our South Pole guiding system. Wow. We, we realized that we weren't going to be able to talk to each other uh, because we'd have hoods up, masks on to avoid the frostbite. Uh, it just wasn't possible to, to, for me to be guided through uh, vocal cues. Uh, we, we, nor were we going to be able to use technology. We tested all sorts of te technology um, to, and you run up against the problem of battery charging or carrying batteries and it losing its charge. And it was just extra stuff to go that could go wrong. So what we ended up doing was uh, Simon, uh, my South Pole teammate, and and then Inga, Norwegian. Uh, they were they were on on the team, but I was primarily behind Simon. So he had he was dragging his sledge. I attached two carbon fiber poles to the back of his sledge with the, the carbon fiber poles had had rope running through the middle of them and we attached with carabiners to attach the poles to the back of his sledge and then also to my ski poles so i very much like the harness i and you couldn't just have strings because you i wouldn't have been able to feel him slowing down i would hit the back of the sledge so we needed these poles to transfer the information from the sledge back to the poles and then i could feel when simon's sledge went left right up and down, which is a, a thing that you may not imagine in Antarctica, but there, the, there are the, the winds down there are called catabatic winds. And they, it's like a, a hard beach where you see the sort of ripples, the wind ripples in the, in, in the sand. Yeah, you see some of the images, don't you, from the footage? Right. Yeah. So that's called, that's called sastrugi, and it can be anything from 10 centimetres to four or five metres. And the toughest stuff was whenever I, we were going over the rough and broken sastrugi when bits of, there was ice rubble all over the place. So not only was it up and down, up and down, but it was sideways. And this, uh, I was feeling Simon going left, right. My sledge would flip over, his would flip over, Inga's would uh, flip over. Not so much because he was super experienced. But the, the, the principle was uh, 
was you was based on the guide the guide dog guide dog harness and it worked uh, it worked beautifully yeah it's um i mean it's just fascinating insight into into what what must have been an extraordinary experience and, and it's really interesting hearing you talk about it because you know over the course of your career you you've talked about the, the principle of 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 soloists and also those who collaborate and it's interesting mark when you look at your um you know fantastic sporting career it really is um the arch- archetypal example of of collaboration you know when you think about um you know rowing as a sport i mean that that is that is the ultimate collaborative exercise and you know it's a similar with with um you know the marathon de sable that, that you mm-hmm. undertook i think with john o'regan which was obviously a collaborative experience and the same with the, the, the race to the South Pole. And there's no doubt that, you know, in, in elite sport or, or indeed elite performance in any discipline, you can achieve a lot as a soloist. But, you know, you're a perfect example of, of how you can achieve so much more if if you collaborate or, or, or you're part of a team or you're all working towards the same goal. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And look, I think the the best example of this and I thought a lot around the South Pole read a lot and I still I still uh, lean on the stories of exploration from the early 1900s the heroic age of polar exploration with Shackleton yeah and Amundsen and we say those names and we're drawn to those big personalities uh, like it's like it's their story but what you discover very quickly is that that there were no hero stories. It was always about collaboration. And in fact, Shackleton's story of leadership is, is one of collab- collaboration that he connected with, uh, with um, the, pe- the people who were going to wreck the whole thing whenever, I mean, Shackleton's story is, you know, they were, they were trying to do an epic expedition, the endurance, they got stranded. And it took him about two years to go and rescue all his men. Nobody died, but there was no mutiny. There was no one dragging down the morale, and anyone who was dragging down down the morale, Shackleton dealt with them with compassion, not uh, a command and control type type structure. So, I suppose when you delve into any of the great stories, the big personalities are those suggest a hero story, but the big breakthroughs it is always it's always one of collaboration. One of the things, Mark, you touched on earlier that that I picked up on, and I know you've spoken a lot about this, um, is is this idea of being willing to risk failure, and also being being willing to embrace change. And it's you know it's it's quite humbling and, and inspiring just just sitting listening to you talk about that in the context of you know your your many experiences and, and, and achievements, and I suppose for. For so many of us, the, the idea of sort of risk of failure is a is a barrier, um, and you can apply that to you can apply it to sport. You, you can apply it to you know careers and business, and you know launching an organisation or growing an organisation, or even sort of more personal development um, you know issues as well. And I suppose it was occurring to me that all of that has perhaps taken on a greater relevance given. The, the sort of uncharted waters that we all find ourselves in now and that society finds itself in and and this sort of never-ending uncertainty with trying to navigate through through this this sort of ongoing pandemic. Mm. Um, 
I, I'm sure that has resonated with you in, in many of the conversations that you've been having with, 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 with people and also with, with businesses as well. Yeah, well, I suppose the, the, the question, I, mean, I, I'm, I always start, I think, with a, with a, with a binary uh, view, view where, whereby we're either spectators or competitors, we're surrealists, soloists, or collaborators. But if, if we look at the, the idea of being a spectator or a competitor, and you could put different labels on it, but in my experience, when I went blind, I felt like it was going to be a, a sitting on the sidelines as a reluctant spectator. Um, over the 10 years where I built up as an adventure athlete, ultimately doing my big race that we've, we've, we've mentioned uh, to, to the South Pole, all of those experiences were about um, feeling normal again. And normal for me was a competitor pursuing success, risking failure, defined by my willingness to try. But the, the, the choice here is, and we face it no matter what, no matter what we're doing, as you say, all those different arenas that we that we operate in, and, and, and the arenas that we operate in as competitors, when we're failing and succeeding and failing again and succeeding again and trying and getting it wrong and getting it right, that's in the arena. Um, but so many, so many of us physically and and mentally sit on the sidelines as spectators, too scared. To have a go because our our reputations have been built up to the point where we can't fail. Of course, we always can fail, but we feel from a reputational point of view, we can't risk the possibility of getting it wrong, of of failing, of of being seen to not know how to do it, what the right answer is, being physically or mentally capable of doing it. So you know, all of us have this either going on mentally. Uh, in whatever arena we're we're in, some people play out in sport in the phys- the physical arena. But so many sports people talk talk about that that physical display of greatness uh, is only half the story. It always comes back to what's going on in their mind: imposter syndrome. Uh, will I perform? Will I not not perform? So, so I suppose I'm I I look at this all of the time through the lens of. Will I be a spectator or a competitor? I'm very firmly on the side that a competitor means we define ourselves by our willingness to try. That means that I'm comfortable in pursuing success and risking failure. And I apply that to my efforts to cure paralysis. You know, the, the South Pole uh, was done. <laughs> that, that goal was achieved 100 years ago. I was just down there playing. We were just down there as sportsmen doing an adventure race. This endeavor to cure paralysis, this new expedition at the intersection where humans and technology collide, this has been a complete failure up to this point in history. So uh, I suppose looking back through history, uh, history is filled with accounts of the impossible made possible through human endeavor. That human endeavor is defined by people's willingness to try, and when they do so, they can risk failure. Uh, I'm in the, I'm in the arena now, where I'm saying we want to cure paralysis in our lifetime. I'm endeavoring to do that, set against a backdrop of complete failure by everyone in society, 
Um, so if I felt for a moment that if we didn't achieve that goal, that I would be a complete failure, I couldn't possibly start. So I'm comfortable that the effort and the endeavor uh, is how I define myself. Success or failure along the way, that's just part, that's just part of the game, part of the process. And in many ways, you're sort of articulating the, the architect, archetypal mindset of the Stoic. I mean, it, Stoicism is something that I'm interested in, the teachings of it. I mean, don't um, test me on it because I don't know about it to any great academic level, but I suppose I've read one or two books uh, on the subject. And indeed, one is actually by a gentleman called Ryan Holiday, and it's called The Obstacle is the Way. I don't know if you know, know the book. Yeah. Yeah, um, but it's all yeah. about how we're defined, not so much by the obstacles we face, but how we face up to those obstacles. And in some ways, that that, that sort of underlines a lot of the, the message that you have delivered on this podcast and, and, and you all always deliver so eloquently. And the book actually starts with the words of Marcus Aurelius, the, the Roman emperor, when he wrote uh, on the eve of the battle in the War of Germania. And he stated that our actions may be impeded but there can be no impeding our intentions and dispositions because we can accommodate and adapt. The mind adapts and converts to the obstacle um, for its own purposes. And he went on to write, the impediment to action advances action. What stands in the way becomes a way. Now, Mark, we talked earlier in the podcast, and indeed you mentioned it uh, a couple of minutes ago about being in the fight, thriving off being in the fight. Maybe this is a difficult question, but do you think you would have achieved what you have achieved in life and indeed are now still achieving, particularly in relation to the seeking of a cure for paralysis without the obstacles of blindness and then paralysis or without having to face down those obstacles? No doubt you would have had um, a very successful life in whatever thing you pursued, but in terms of what you've achieved now, those obstacles have been um, formative and determinative in many ways. Um, yeah, it's uh, well. There's a lot there, there. There's a lot. There's a lot in your in your question. I I am very interested in the in the in the Stoics and and also those people who have been who have been influenced by the by the Stoics. Someone like Viktor Frankl, who was yeah. a neurologist, a psychiatrist, a doctor, a philosopher, a Holocaust survivor, uh, and one of one of the great thinkers of our thinker, thinkers of our time, he said, um, "When we can no longer change our situation, we're challenged to change ourselves." Which is kind of reflecting what Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus and Seneca were talking about two thousand years ago. And I think yeah. the great thing about the Stoics is it's a Stoic with a capital S. Stoic philosophy is quite different from Stoic with a small s. Uh, which is the stiff upper lip, no emotion yeah. um, that you just gotta you just gotta battle through. But I think on the the uh, Ryan Holiday's book, I have I have read it and I, I subscribe to his the, the Daily Stoic, um, yeah, his da daily podcast. And I think, in a way, to to try and uh, loop around and answer your uh, actually answer your question, would I have done what I what I have done without? These uh, these things, uh, blindness and paralysis, coming my way. The answer the answer, of course, is no. Um, but I I do not subscribe to what I sometimes read from other people, and 
it's their experience. Other people who have had uh, who've acquired disabilities along the way or have had major life challenges where they they say and it is their experience, so therefore uh, you know it it is their truth. But I don't subscribe to it where they say this is the this is the best thing that that has happened. I wouldn't change it. Yeah. You know, absolutely, would change. Uh, not being not being paralyzed and not being blind is a much more prefer is a preferable is to be than being blind or paralyzed. However, uh, it has made me think. And one of the other things the Stoics say, one of the practices which Nietzsche said, I think I can't work out actually. Did did Nietzsche name this or did it come from the Stoics? But there's a there's an interaction. Am amor fate, uh, which is to the explanation is that. It's lucky, whatever. Sort of love your fate. Don't just don't just put up with it, but love it, and sort of springboard to the opportunity. When I I was going to go into investment banking, uh, based on the fact that I read I read uh, Liars Poker and Rogue Trader and you know stripy jackets and things back in the early early nineties, and there was also form of stoicism there. <laughs> where I draw, well, I think I wanted to go to Singapore and drink Tiger beer and. Um, yeah bar but and at the time as well when I was in school BBC Radio 1 had a what you could do as a career and what the A-level grades were to were to, to end up in that course I was writing off lawyer you know, wouldn't have made a doctor no and I eventually got down to stockbroker you know and uh, I thought well that sounds good now then I read the books and was going to going to go into that um but coming back to coming back coming back to the point, I would have ended up in investment banking like a lot of my friends have done. Travelled around the world, probably enjoyed the competitive environment, uh, and I would have been down that track. And I I know that I wouldn't have t- had time. I wouldn't have had time, nor would I have been forced to reflect on who I was or what mattered to me, and I. The aftermath of blindness, as I as I went along and ended up creating my speaking business, which required you to work out what your story was, redevelop my identity as an adventure athlete, and become uh, a speaker and an adventure athlete. Then do the same after my process, reflect, reading, and I found myself drawn to stories that have turned out to be people who are in fact stoic. So, in Jim Collins' book, Good to Great. The part of that book, which is a business book and a leadership book, the, the story that I wrote about um, in intensive care was the story of Admiral, Stock, Admiral Stockdale, who was a prisoner of war in Vietnam, but he was actually a student of the Stoics. He was influenced by Epictetus. And then I find myself drawn to Viktor Frankl's story, and I find that a lot of his framing is very similar to the Stoics. Uh, and and so on and so on. So, um, I, I I'm certainly doing different things. The blindness and paralysis have certainly forced me to reflect on who I was and and what matters to me. And then the other pattern that I'm seeing is that I'm I'm constantly drawn and in, drawn to and interested in stories that are the the, the, the ancient Stoics modern-day Stoics or variations of the people who have been influenced by the Stoics? Um, Just actually to pick up on on 
one point, Mark, because you, you mentioned um, in passing the, the, the blog that um, you wrote whilst you were in intensive care. And I, and I think the, the title of that blog was something along the lines of um, optimist, realist or, or something else. And indeed, I think that's something and we're going to come on to your TED talk in a minute. But that's something that you 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 expand upon in your TED talk. Uh, I mean, what did that mean to you? at the time and indeed what does it mean to you now yeah we're all we're always learning we're always changing uh, our opinion and i think that the blog that i wrote was at a was at a, a point in time and 10 years on i'm i'm that thinking has evolved but at the time two weeks into intensive care i see i i just i'd spent 10 years building up my story through the newspapers and and, and yeah. documentaries, speaking in for businesses about leadership, about dealing with challenges, um, and that that body of work, if you like, had had positioned me in such a way uh, that I was that I was smashing through challenges. I felt unstoppable at uh, at the time. You know, just coming back after. The success of the South Pole, and then we did an offshore. Myself and another guy did a, a round Ireland yacht race in a forty-foot boat over five and a half days, and I, I was, I was at the top of my game, if you like. Uh, and when I had this accident, I found myself in hospital, and my people were sending me messages on Facebook and and Twitter, and sending us cards saying, you know. It, Sorry to hear about your accident, but if it ha- if it was to happen to anyone, uh, it, sort of, it's lucky it was you because you handle it. You know, the encouraging words, but yeah. strange, encouraging words, and I had created that. Yeah, about myself, but I didn't feel like that person anymore. And in the blog, optimist, realist, or something else, two weeks into intensive care, high on morphine, broken back, broken ribs internal bleeding, fractured skull, three bleeds on my brain, at the very edge of survival, I was first of all questioning, were the things that I used to speak about, being a soloist or being a a spectator or a competitor, being an optimist or a realist, being a soloist or a collaborator, were 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 these just topics that seemed to hit a corporate market so I could self talks and go and do adventure races. Now I didn't think they were when I was when I was doing those talks. I was examining my response to blindness. I was exam, examining my adventure racing teams. I I thought they were true at the time. But lying in intensive care, writing the blog, I was questioning. You know, are these are these themes just a corporate talk? Uh, and thankfully, they, they they haven't been. I have used these themes, but I went on to talk to to talk about Stockdale. Um, and my memory, whether it was true and accurate of what was written in Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, my memory, which is was relevant to me lying in intensive care, was that um, Stockdale had studied Stoic philosophy. He, he had a terrible time in, in Hanoi Hilton, yet he was the leader and the most senior-ranking officer in the prison, and he led throughout his eight years of incarceration and solitary confinement, torture. 
he survived, and he survived, in my view, as a realist. He went on to say that the, the optimists were the ones who didn't survive because they became disappointed, demoralized, and uh, many of them died in their cell when the best-case scenario played out, didn't play out. So yeah. I, I don't think I completely understood what Stockdale was talking about but they, as I finished the blog, but really what he was saying was, if you're an optimist, you rely, you rely on hope alone and run the risk of being disappointed and demoralized. The realists, on the other hand, uh, confront the brutal facts of their current reality and maintain a faith that they'll prevail in the end. They, they balance acceptance and hope by running them both in parallel. So, so I have completely accepted my blindness and paralysis, not that I like it, but that is the starting point. I can use my arms. I'm surrounded by great people. Uh, my brain remains somewhat intact. I've got opportunities ahead. And the other thing is, you know, regardless of the pandemic, we still live at the best time in history. And for those of us who live in, in West, Western Europe, we live in as good a place in the world as it is to live in. So there are all these contexts that are real, accept and hope running in parallel all the time and, um, you know, now I've sort of short-circuited into the challenge cycle of facts, acceptance, and hope running around and around and around. Do, do you ever, out of interest, dig out that blog or redig out that blog and, and, and read it now with, with the benefit of, of, of 10 years' experience since that point? I mean, it must be quite extraordinary to reread that. And you've talked about how, you know, the, the journey has led to, to, to change, but it must be quite weird reading that again. It it is, and I do, I do go back to the to the blog, and I and I notice that's why I sort of said you know the, my memory of the Stockdale story and Jim Collins' analysis is not one hundred percent accurate, but it was a hundred percent relevant. Yeah, and my memory, which I was applying to my situation, was correct. But to say you know it's not a it's not a it's not a it's not a, uh, a I'm not writing word for word for word what what was in the book but i but when i read it and i i read it by listening to it on my talking computer or on my phone despite the chaos that i was in the middle of including hitting a morphine button every 3 minutes the uncertainty not knowing how, how that we would be having this conversation 10 years on re, really facing into the possibility of dying um Despite all that, I, I, I remember it with great clarity. And I wrote it in the middle of the night. To, uh, I imagine from a lawyer, if you guys read, read with what my fiance is a lawyer, and I know that uh, punctuation and grammar is, uh, is big in your world, so I don't think I'd get to talk. Particularly Johnny Medellin's. He's uh, <laughs> <For> the, <laughs> <laughs> the grammar police at Sheridan's. <laughs> but I, I, I read the last, the last line, and it says something like, um, I... I I am going to fight this. I don't. I just don't know what I'm fighting yet. Um, wheelchair operation rehab, walking, or North Pole. Uh, so I, I, I. It's just a matter of time. I will fight this. It's just a matter of time, or something like that. So, so clearly from that line, and I remember it. I didn't know whether I was going to be paralyzed at that stage or whether I was going to make a full recovery and go to the North Pole. But I, but I knew from two weeks in that I was going to be okay. In a way, 
I like to think, I like to think that what I did have about, about Stockdale, um, you know, that, that there were nods to what Stockdale had going on. He said, um, when, when Jim Collins asked him how, you know, how he kept going when he didn't know it was going to be okay in the end, he said, well, that's easy. I never lost faith in the end of the story. I never doubted that not only would I get out, but that I would prevail in the end and turn this experience into the defining event of my life, which in retrospect, I, I would not trade. But what he went on to say, which I think is important, is um, you must never confuse a faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they may be. And I think it's, it's, it's that combination of confronting, the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality. That's the starting point. That's the acceptance, not a resignation that the status quo is going to be the way it is, but an acceptance that that's the starting point combined with a faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose. That's the hope part. Incredible. Um, and that kind of segues rather neatly into one of the other points that, that Johnny and I wanted to talk to you about. And that, that is the, the, the TED talk that, that you did um, in, in 2018 with um, Simone, your fiance. Um, and I want to talk a bit about the, the contents of that, that TED talk, some of which we, we've um, covered already, but some of which we haven't, particularly in relation to the, the great work you're doing in relation to uh, research around uh, para paralysis. But I was actually keen just to ask you about the, the, the TED Talk experience. Um, first up, I guess, how it came about, um, because it must have been extraordinary. I think you're closing in, you mentioned earlier, on 2 million views. I think we all agreed that most of that was down to Simon's poetic skills rather than, <laughs> rather than yours, Mark. But, uh, <laughs> oh, well, I think you're I absolutely right. You might not hit in a million if it wasn't if it wasn't for Simone, but uh, um, but yeah, it would just be really interesting to hear how that came about and what the experience was like because it's such an amazing, iconic thing to do. Yeah, well, there, I suppose there there are a couple of things about uh, about about Ted. Um, you know, as a, as a professional speaker, for me to get to speak at Ted, it's it's almost like the the pinnacle of the speaking game, yeah. if you like, and but you can't go to TED. You can't go to TED and do a talk on goal setting or a talk on. Yeah. You, you can't go and do a corp talk as such. You have to do a TED talk. <laughs> so I, I had I well, people had had applied on my behalf over the years, maybe two or three times, and I got. I got no response at all. But there was, I think it was towards the end of 2017. I had been, I had, I had been speaking at a, at the World Triathlon Conference in Edmonton in Canada, and I was, I was at an opportunity to speak for, uh, for UBS in in Samaritz, and. It was very tight, so the, the the event in Canada was was a really good opportunity. I had it booked in. The UBS event came kind of after that, and uh, and that was an opportunity. The UBS event was an opportunity to tell the story 
about the work we were doing to cure paralysis in front of uh, some very ultra high net worth individuals. So I had to get from Edmonton to San Moritz with not enough time to do it, and then the plane got diverted. It was it was just coming into the into the the winter. I think it was December of of twenty seventeen. So we got delayed in Manchester. I had to fly overnight. My bags got lost along the way, so I had to buy a whole set of new clothes in the in the uh, I think in the Timberland shop was the only shop available. So I had head to toe in Timberland uh, and I flew straight to Samaritz, car up to up to the event uh, and and went in and and did a talk for 20 minutes. Now in the room was Chris Anderson who who runs Ted. He is Mr. Ted. And that evening Simon and I were having dinner and we, we had a chance to have a conversation with Chris. And in the conversation, I, I had just done my, my talk on my own, but although I was talking about the work that Simon and I were doing to bring scientists and technologists and investors together, and in our conversation with Chris, what he was interested in, and Chris is an interesting guy because he's, curate, he's curating the stories for TED and the, the speakers who are at the TED conference. He's curating all the time, so you can nearly... I imagine you can see it in his eyes. You can practically hear it in his going on in, in his head. Where, where he got to was he, he said, "Look, I, I think, I think this may be interesting for our conference in April 2018, specifically looking at shared resilience. So how not just not just the motivation that comes from within one person, which is you know fragile." But rather, what can, in our case, two people, what can two people do? But, but it wasn't just myself and Simon. It was a sort of a representation of what people who come together, uh, who work together, who collaborate, what, what, how can that help us chart a path through very difficult circumstances? So it was a representation of collaboration for resilience, shared resilience. And over the following... But we got a we got a uh, notified maybe about six weeks later after Chris had spoken to his team that we were on for for April April 2018 and then we had to go into the process of actually writing the talk. So what does shared resilience mean? Is it you know do I give my CV and Simon gives her human rights lawyer CV and all the stuff that she's done and then we work out how or do we tell the story from the moment in intensive care? Moving on to the science, do we talk about the science? Is it because it's sort of a sci- you know the the audience potentially interested in science? And from the TED talk, I know you've watched. It, it was we had to find a way to tell one story that allowed me to have my perspective, which is necessarily different from Simon's, and for Simon to have her story and her perspective of exactly the same situation woven together in the story and you know every time you look back you think oh we should have done it differently or whatever but but i suppose the 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 process of writing was very difficult we did about 10 different iterations got it wrong didn't like it and we're we're reasonably happy with uh with the end with the end result but it was extremely challenging 
and it's led on to all sorts of interesting conversations in the in the aftermath. And as you say, Mark, one of one of the the, the core topics, as well as your journey, was the the, the science behind um, trying to find a cure for for paralysis, and indeed the the, the almost um, brokerage rule that, that you were playing in terms of joining up the dots or connecting the various. Uh, experts uh, in in your field, and and indeed you, you spoke in in the you and Simone spoke in, in the TED talk about the importance of finding a cause greater than ourselves, yourselves, um, and, and there's no you know greater cause than what you're doing now. Where where are you on that uh, that that journey, and 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 and, and how, how do you see it moving forward over the next um, few years? Yeah, well, it is sort of a. a a deal, a, a deal maker role because I, in, in the beginning in hospital, the the doctors who are putting the screws into people's spines and many of the neuroscientists, you know, are doing that brilliant job. You're in a crisis. You're looking to them to say, "Well, yeah, I really want you to know about putting screws into in in my back." But but you're the expert in this world that I've just entered into and. What what does it look like out there for the cure on the cure side of things? And of course, those guys are so busy doing brilliant work that they don't know about the research. So we had to go out and find the researchers, the robotic legs, the electrical stimulation of the spine, the brain machine interfaces, and we found no shortage of 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 amazing people. But what we spoke about in the TED talk was our uh, realization that. A robotics company and set of researchers are focused on their part of the part of the jigsaw. The electrical stimulation scientists uh, and physiologists—they're they're really working hard and trying to raise funding for their piece. So we brought those two groups together: Exobionics from San Francisco, uh, Reggie Edgerton's lab at UCLA in Los Angeles, and we created a study for three months where I went and had electrodes put onto the skin of my lower back. I stood in my robot. I walked in it, and with the electrical stimulator turned on, I was able to voluntarily move my legs. And as I did more with my legs, the robot did less. Yeah. And, you know, that was, that was fantastic. It was three months. It was like, it was like going from driving, a, a, you know, an old second-hand car to driving a Ferrari. It was fantastic. Yeah. And then I, I went back to Ireland I had a set of robotic legs, which were brilliant, but I couldn't get access to the stimulator. So we realized that, in fact, part of the challenge is, is not just, it's not just a, the world of science that we needed to operate in. We also needed to find investors, find people who are willing to put money into this, this area. So we've, we helped Reggie's spin-out company to raise $5 million dollars. Uh, which they promptly spent in further development, and now they've merged with a European company, and I think the the product's going to be um, commercialized and out in the world, impacting people's lives in probably the start of 2022. Wow! Uh, but but I suppose in all of this, over the last 10 years, coming back to 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 answer your question, we looked at you know, do we need to raise 50 million dollars? To, spend, to give to researchers, would that fix it? Um, well, the U.S. government and 
the European research funds and so have way more money than 50 million. So the you know the money's not we would we'd struggle to raise that and it still wouldn't be enough. And the government agencies have more than that kind of available. Should we raise an investment fund, a venture philanthropy fund? Well, again, there's enough money in the system. There's enough investment, uh, there's enough capital in the system. I listened to a I listened to a book by Chris Voss, who was the former FBI hostage negotiator, chief host, chief hostage negotiator for the FBI, and I then went and did a, a course with him. And having having done having done the course and read his book, which is called Never Split the Difference, he he says that in a hostage situation. Uh, you can't be in a. You can't have a bank robber holding four hostages, and 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 say, "Well, look, just give me two of them. You keep the other two, and we'll we'll just split the difference." So the hostage taker needs a hundred percent of what he or she needs. The hostage negotiator needs one hundred percent of what they need. That's all four hostages out alive. So the question then becomes: Well, what what does everyone need? The we know what the hostage taker needs. The people out alive, but what? Uh, sorry, the hostage negotiator needs everyone out alive. What does the hostage taker need? And usually, it's to be heard, to be listened, to be recognised, that sort of thing. So it's not, you know, the hostage taker doesn't really want the hostages. It's just a tool. So I, I started to apply that thinking to the world of science, technology, investment, foundations, regulators, patients in the in the world of of paralysis. And Chris Voss has since joined our advisory board. It struck me that the scientist can't talk to the Wall Street investor <laughs> or the City of London investor, and the City of London investor finds the scientist who always wants to keep researching because there's always a better answer, whereas the investor wants to get the product out in the world, to get some returns going and get their money back. So what we find, the foundations are doing other work. They have other agendas. Everyone, and by the way, what I'm talking about here is Everyone that we talk to and everyone in this space is world class. So I'm not talking about people who are not up to the job. I'm, I'm talking about people who are brilliant, but they're speaking a different language. And in fact, what our role and our role now with our, our new organization, Collaborative Cures, is to act as that broker. In fact, I liken it on to perhaps uh, the Northern Ireland uh, peace process where, where we've somehow in the mid-90s when, when I was just get, coming out of school and going, going, to, going to, to university, we somehow found a way that enough people got enough of what they needed to work out an imperfect way forward, but a way forward nonetheless. And, and I see that applying in, sci in science. There is too much fragmentation. There is a crisis of collaboration. And our aim is to bring people together now to cure paralysis in our lifetime. And I think... I think it is a challenge of negotiation and building trust over time as opposed to that trust breaking down. So the, almost a, a momolum rule, if you will. And I'm bad at it. So I'm having to learn or else bring people who are better in better than, <laughs> than me. But I realized when when I was going into meetings, I was just saying to people, Well, look, that hasn't worked over the last 30 years. This we now know with the new information we have, this works. But what I didn't realize was I was sparking a, those 
everyone who'd been who'd been working in this area for 30 years and more, I was just saying to them, or what they were hearing was, you you've been getting it wrong for the last 30 years. You know, they're on the defensive. They're hearing me saying you're useless and you failed me. I wasn't saying that at all. I'm just saying I'm just saying you know let's look to the future. But my language was. Uh, putting a barrier in the way. And I also, uh, my language was putting a barrier in the way to progress in small meetings. The investors were the scientists. The scientists are annoying the investors. And this is going to continue. But how can we put interventions in place that um, that facilitate collaboration? Yeah. It's amazing, Mark, that so much of what we talk about links back to where you draw your inspiration from and, and, and your desire to constantly learn from others and collaborate with others, whether that's, you know, academics, authors, scientists, um, philosophers, entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it, it's amazing that, you know, it's, it's clear that you're obviously an avid reader and, and that desire to constantly learn and collaborate is, is underpins all of your, all of your work and, and who you are. And uh, it's funny that we, we have one question that we ask all of our podcast guests, and I think you're the ninth ninth uh, uh, guest on, on the Backpage podcast. And it's the last question we, we ask everyone, which is, is there a piece of content that you perhaps are enjoying at the minute? And it could be a book, it could be a blog, it could be a podcast um, that you would, you know, that you're sort of immersed in that you would recommend to listeners. And I know you, you've mentioned so many, you know, fantastic and um, sort of sources of inspiration you mentioned never split the difference as being one but I suppose the question is is there a is there something that you're enjoying at the minute that stands out you would recommend to, to anyone listening um well, yeah, Andrew mentioned uh Ryan Holiday's book The Obstacle is the Way and he he goes he's got loads of books the the, the ego is the enemy stillness is the key um, That's right. I've got them all I'm read them all do you? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, I have. Uh, I, I give you, I give you, I give you two. One, one learning one, and one, one fiction one. The Ryan Holiday has a website called the da- the Daily Stoic, and you can get lots. Yeah, I think you can get pretty much all the content for free. But I've, I've got so into it, you know, that I've, I've subscribed as an annual member, which means you can do all the courses. Tame your temper, stray, slay your stress, uh, yeah. uh, all these different ha- habit ones. But there, it, it's all the content that you would have, you would get in all the books. I have also got, and when I read this on the web, the website, they've got all this merchandise, uh, buy prints and little statues and things. Like that. I thought to myself, who, who buys that stuff? You know. But one of the, one of the things that he has is are these medallions. And they they have little quotes on the back, uh, amor uh, amor fate or premeditatum malorum, which is the premeditation of evils or sort of negative visualization, so that we can be prepared for things that may go wrong or be taken away from us. Uh, memento mori, which is you could a reminder you could leave life life right now, uh, and so on. The, the, all of the all of the different quotes. So I I like to. I got. I bought them. Is my point. I bought eight of them for one hundred and fifty dollars. But I can pick them up, and they sort of because Stoic philosophy is a practice. It's a way. It's a way of living. It's not. 
I think philosophy has been locked behind uh, university walls, uh, pondering, beard stroking and pondering life, which, you know, perhaps we need, perhaps we need that as well. But I, the practical application of philosophy and applying that to modern times and the situations that we, that we all face, I think uh, Ryan Holiday's and the Daily Stoics articulation of it makes it very accessible. So I'd recommend that. And I'm a, I'm a fully paid up <laughs> member uh, of that, and I've got all the books, and now I've got the medallions. But the, the 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 alternative that I'd say is, when I'm not reading, sometimes I just have to stop. It, you know, sometimes when you're learning, 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 and you're reading a book or listening to a book, in my case, that's 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 like feels like work sometimes, and sometimes I just need to to step away. And my my genre of choice uh, is I I love the Andy McNabb or Chris Ryan books. So the one that I'm listening to right now is Chris Ryan. Uh, Chris Ryan has just brought a well. I've discovered in the Danny Black series, which is a sort of SAS uh, riveting read fiction story. Uh, but he's just brought out another book, book seven, and I'm halfway through halfway through that. So there, that's what I that's what I listen to when I'm not um, when I'm not reading my uh, learning books. Aren't you also a fan of the Barcelona way as well? Barcelona way, yes. That. So I was interested, I've ha- and I've had to narrow my focus. I, I was on, I got on to a guy called Adam Grant, who's, who's an organizational psychologist in Wharton. Um, and, I, and I was, again, I was sort of asking him, because I was interested in organizational psychology, and I was just asking him, to his podcast and listening to his books, I said, pretty much everything you say I'm interested in. I say, how do you stop yourself just going off in all sorts of tangents? He said, you just need to put boundaries around your curiosity. And so I've, I am interested in spectators and competitors, optimists and realists, solos and collaborators. And I've tried to narrow my focus now to just look through those three lenses. But of course, those decision themes are made in in a in a cultural context, and the Barcelona way is is one that I was that I was reading. Also, read, uh, the the All Blacks book Leg- Legacy. Yes, great book. When we when we operate in a co- in a in a context of flexibility, of psychological safety, um, or a hierarchy with no psychological safety. Decisions that we have the ability to make, our our ability to risk failure, fear that we have, the reputational risk, all that stuff comes into a cultural context. So I'm I'm sort of interested in. I I I present these ideas that we can make. We are we all have the freedom to make these decisions all of the time. But to live in a country where that is not the case, where your where your constraints are such that you. You don't have the freedom to make these decisions. Well, then that's where the you know Stoic philosophy comes in, or the Frankel story. If we live in this part of the world, this time in history, with the freedoms that we are privileged to have, um, well, then it's incumbent on us to make the right decision to to do the right to do the right thing, um, and 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 to lead because there's so many people around the world or in my community. Uh, of the paralyzed community. There are so many people in my community who, who don't have the backing, the opportunities that I have. So I have a, I have a great 
opportunity to explore the possibility of curing paralysis. But I have, I have a sense that, that because I've got that opportunity, it's great for me personally, it's not great for the guys I shared a word with who don't have that opportunity. So I, I therefore, that opportunity is matched with a responsibility uh, to do something about it. So um, yes, I, I, love, I love the Barcelona way. Oh, that's, that's, a, that's a, in many ways, a, an apt message on which to, to bookend the, the podcast. I mean, Mark, we've had some extraordinary guests on, on the back page from sports business leaders to elite athletes. And in many ways, you're a combination of, of both uh, and indeed more. And it's an honour to have had the chance to speak with you. I mean, your message of, of resilience and, and balancing hope and acceptance is inspiring. And of course, now what you're doing in relation to collaborating to help find a cure for paralysis is quite frankly extraordinary. And both Johnny and I and the team at Sheridan's were very grateful to you for taking the time to speak with us. Um, it really was inspiring. Well, I've, I've, uh, I've, I've enjoyed it. But then, of course, it's, it's always a worry to say that you've enjoyed it after you've just spoken about yourself for, for an hour. <laughs> We'll let you off that one. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Sheridan Sport Backpage Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter at Sheridan Sport and also subscribe to our Backpage blogs and previous podcast episodes. You can also share ideas and connect with us individually on Twitter and LinkedIn. Feel free to get in touch with one of the team. Andrew, Dan, Chris, Johnny, Alex, Sarah, Ryan and L. Finally, the Backpage podcast is powered by Milestone, a mental health charity aimed at tackling setbacks through sport and in turn helping to normalise the conversation around mental health. To learn more about Milestone and its aims and how you can get involved, visit teammilestone.co.uk or check them out on Instagram at milestone.uk or Twitter at milestone underscore UK. Thanks for listening.